We're going to be in the epistles of John, 1 John chapter 3. We, we're going to backtrack a couple of verses to verse 16. Our only goal for the rest of today is to get through verse 24. We'll probably spend a couple of, of weeks in chapter 4 because it is a rich, rich chapter. Who knows? We may spend three weeks there, but I'm, I'm going to try to do it in two. Um, today's, we're going to continue what I said we were starting last week. And there are two primary themes throughout the epistles of John. Remember, John is the Apostle John. Paul said that John was one of the three pillars that held up the church in Jerusalem. When Rome came in, decimated the temple, the dispersion began. John left to move to Turkey, started planting churches, working with churches. Now, a church is a house with some people in it. Uh, It is not something like this. It is, I mean, they may have had this many people in it, but more than likely they only had around 50 or less total people in a house church. And he started them and they began to grow and he had churches in every city uh, that that he was working with. This letter is later in his life at this point in which he is trying to communicate two primary things that have become very important to him. And that is that we walk in two ways, in truth and in love. And so the two characteristics that we are most concerned about is holiness and love. Now, we have to understand what does he mean by those and how do we walk in them. And we live in a culture in which people want you to believe you have to be one or the other. If if you're going to be focused on holiness or truth, then you will not be loving. And if you are loving, then you will ignore holiness and truth. And yet John would say, that is crazy. That is crazy. Because the two are required together. It is all part of following and knowing Jesus. So today, what John does in these few verses is probably some of the hardest verses in this epistle to understand and to dig stuff out of. And it's primarily because he is saying, this is how you know that you know Christ. (laughs) That's what he's saying in these verses. This is how you know that you're living out this thing that we talk about. And so for us to look at it, we love these kinds of verses when it jumps out at the page and we have a list and we walk away with a list and we're able to say, okay, I got it. I do these things. I'm in. I'm done. I got this thing licked. But that is not the way that Jesus talks about it. It's not the way that John talks about it. We've got to do a little bit of digging. We've got to do a little bit of pulling it apart. And we're going to do that together. If you're our guest today, we've been having somewhat of a discussion-based time um, together. And the reason that we're doing that is because I don't know how many teachers are in the room. You don't really know something until you know how to communicate it or how to teach it to somebody else. If you've never had the opportunity to take what you believe and have to either defend it or teach it to someone else, I'm just going to tell you right up front, you don't really know it yet. And so this is a very easy way for us to be able to talk, to talk back, um, to ask questions, uh, to push back if you want to push back. But I encourage you to use this time uh, just to sharpen each other. All right. We're going to begin by reading together. We're going to go back to if you would stand with me. This is 1 John chapter 3. We're going to begin with verse 16. We're going to read through verse 24. I want you to read aloud with me, okay? 1 John, the reading out of the ESV. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 
But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Thank you. You can be seated. I also want us to remember that like any letter you would write, you typically don't break your letter down into subsections and in an outline form, communicate your thoughts. Now, I love to think that way. Whenever I was in school, I would take notes that way. Everything was an outline. I love outlines. If you give me just a big block of text, I look at it and I'll hand it back to you. But if I have an outline, I can digest it. That's just the way my mind works. But if I'm writing an email or a letter and I'm just wanting to talk to you, that's not the way I write. It's not the way that you write. We sometimes think that whenever we see a subsection in scripture, that means, okay, they're done talking about that. They've moved on to something else. And while sometimes that is true, many times they want to continue the thought. It's all linked. Whenever we have the belief or the understanding of Scripture that they're all separate sections that are apart from one another, then that leads us to a fractured understanding of what God wants to say to us. That's why we can be super strong in one area of faith and very weak in another. That's why we can feel very good about loving God, and yet if we're not obeying God, He would say, well, you don't love me if you're not obeying me. But if we subset everything out and we break them down and we don't try to see how they relate to each other, we get a very unclear picture. So as we read John, John also is not doing that. But we do know that John is communicating some very specific things. And this section is continuing a thought from verse 11. It says this, 1 John chapter 3, verse 11, five verses before. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And he is going on in this letter to then describe that, okay? The importance of loving one another and what that means for the overarching uh, health of your relationship with Christ. That's where we pick up in verse 16, and we covered some of that last week. But I want us to spend some time here and kind of pull this apart and understand what he's trying to say. But just as we start out today, we need to understand that this aspect of loving other people is not something that you can choose to do or choose not to do. This is not something that we have the option of saying, well, they're not that loving or lovable. It's not the kind of thing where we can say, you know what, I, I will love the people that I like. Well, you're going to do that anyways. And I'm not going to love the people that I don't like. 
Instead, we have to understand through not just John, because John says this throughout his epistle, but also Jesus, that believers loving other believers is central to following Jesus. Okay, let's go to that next slide. All right, I want us to read this together. Read it together. Believers loving other believers is central to following Jesus. This is not just some separate aspect that you can eventually get around to. This is central to the gospel. Because everywhere Jesus talks about knowing and following him, this appears. Now, it doesn't mean that God's going to line up every person in front of you at whatever day that you're standing before him and say, now, which of these people did you love well and not love well? You did not love a certain number of people as well as others. Therefore, you are out. That is not how this relates to the gospel. This is not anywhere in the gospel that says you will work out your faith and prove your faith simply because you're going to love everybody. Jesus died on the cross. He gave his life for us. He rose from the dead. We believe in him. He brings us uh, the opportunity to be, have our sins atoned for, to be cleansed from those. We don't add to that. Jesus did that. Our ability to love others does not make us more saved, but our ability to love others demonstrates that we are saved. And John is going to go on and explain that in these next few verses. Believers loving other believers is central to following Jesus. In John 13, this is how Jesus said it. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And he says this, and we're going to hear a phrase just like this throughout today's reading in 1 John 3. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. Now, when he says something like that, you need to know what this is all about. By this, people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In other words, if people can't see in some way your love for other believers, they will not equate that you are his disciple, at least not in the way that Jesus wants us to demonstrate that. So this is an important teaching. This is not just we should all get along. This is not all, you know, hey, I just want you to be happy and I just want you to know that you're awesome. Those are all important parts of showing love for somebody. However, they're not the only parts of what it means to show love. Now, he says in verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. John, using that same structure, is going to say that three times in these nine verses. He's going to say, by this we know, three times in nine verses. Again, when you see that place in Scripture, those are clue in words to say, important, 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 stop, slow down, don't just read through, don't just bulldoze over, stop and listen, because this is super important. Let's pick up with verse 16. By this we know, there it is, listen, ears up, we're watching, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So, how do we know love? 
As I've said before, this is one of the most critical things you have to grapple with within your faith. What is your definition of love? Because if your definition of love is that no one's upset with you, then I would argue that is not love. That is not love. You have to come to the place of understanding when Jesus talks about love, what is he saying? And when John describes love, he is saying it is wrapped up in this reality that Jesus loved us by sacrificing himself for us. And if we love others, we will be willing to sacrifice our lives for others. Now, I stand before you as someone who's never had to sacrifice their life for someone else. Surprising, I know, that I'm still here. I've never had to do that. I'm guessing by the fact that you're here that you yourself have never had to do that for someone else. Now, we hear stories where perhaps a sibling or a friend needs a kidney, and so you give them a kidney, and And so your ability to thrive is possibly diminished while you give someone else who can't thrive a chance to live at some level. But we generally do not live in the reality that we're going to have to die for someone else. Now, people around the world do. Not only are they required to do this on a daily basis, this does happen around the world. People are in worship places around the world today, not knowing if they will go home again. The reality that Jesus calls us to a place higher than the preservation of our own life is right throughout the New Testament. And when we begin to talk about loving others, simply getting along will never be the right litmus test for love. One of the ways that this comes into sharp focus is when we look at other believers that we're not really sure that we even like them. If you've ever prayed for someone to uh, be judged, for God to strike them dead, for God to cause some kind of harm to come upon them because you just don't like them, or they've done something bad to you or to someone else, then you've broken this commandment. When we look at our enemies, we feel like they're our enemies, and they claim to be Christians, our ability to love becomes complicated, doesn't it? Well, do I have to love them? Because I'm really not sure that they're a Christian. And yet what Jesus would say to that would be, well, listen, here's the thing. You just love well. I'll work all that out. That would be the parable of the wheat and the tares, that literally there are people here today, likely, now we're going to assume we're all wheat here today because that makes everybody feel good, right? But based on what Jesus said, a good number of people in this room today are not true followers, even though they look like it. Even though they're here, even though they got a Jesus on the back of their car, even though we don't really do that anymore, we do other things, right? To say, I'm a Christian. And Jesus would say, you know, there's a lot of people within the church that look like a follower, and they're not. There are wheats and there are tares. Now, those of you who love a good conspiracy theory are already trying to track down who in the room is which, and you want to figure it out. And maybe when they walk in the door, we should give them something, you know, like, you know, you're wheat and you're a tear, like you're a T and a W. Maybe we should do that and then we can all know, which I know sounds crazy, but those kinds of things happen, maybe in less obvious ways. But he said there will be wheats and there will be tears and they will look the same. But in the end, 
after it's all said and done, I will be the one to separate. It's not our job. It's not my job to come and say, you know, you know what? You're not a real believer. Now, there are at times indicators that a person really is not following Jesus. But it's Jesus' role. It's God's role. God's the judge. He's the one that will separate the wheat and the tares at the end. We don't do it now. He would say, just love. Just love people. And as you love people, you have to be willing to give your life for someone. Now, if someone walks up to me and says, listen, I need you to give your life for someone else. We are all transactional thinkers. Okay, what is the value of what I'm receiving with this gift in which I'm giving? Like, giving my life away for someone else is a high cost, right? Most of us would say that's one of the highest costs you could pay outside of someone that you loved had to give their life. That's a high cost. Is this person worth it? That's a natural place for our minds to go to decide how we're going to love. Jesus raised the stakes. John kept them up here high. And he said, the definition of loving other people, as we've seen from Jesus, is that they're willing to give their life for for their brother. And if you're going to love like Jesus does, and by this we know love, is that you're willing to give your life for someone else. Now, the fact that in our mind we go through this transactional thinking and I say, you know what? Okay, so you're a good person, but I really think I can make a bigger impact in the world than you. So maybe we should just let your life go and I'll stay. The mindset behind that is self-preservation, which is normal, natural part of living life. It is a survival instinct, but it is also to say the thing that comes next is not better than the thing that I have now. And what Jesus wants us to see is that there is a bigger kingdom that's out around us that we have available to us, for us, that we will eternally live a part of, that is way better than the life in which we live here. But do I have that high view of Jesus in the kingdom? Or do I view it as that backup plan if this thing here, my number one plan, doesn't work out? And if we're honest, we all to some degree have this view of heaven that I hope it's that good, but right now I'm living for this life. What John was saying, what Jesus was saying, what Jesus was demonstrating by giving his life for us is there's a better way that looks at life with a broader lens than simply what value is my life in this place. There's something more. There's something bigger. How do we know love? Two primary ways, John's saying it, just right here in these few verses, is that Jesus laid down his life for us We know that. He didn't have to do that. We know that in the Garden of Gethsemane, he labored, he sweat, he was stressed, he pleaded with God. And yet he still followed through and gave his life. And the second thing that we see through this is that we follow his example by willing to be willing to sacrifice for others. Now, I hope that none of us, myself included, have to come to the place where I do have to sacrifice my life. I want us all to live, right? Let's just all do well. That's what we all want. But the deeper level concept that he's sharing with us is, are you willing to sacrifice for others? I don't mean, are you willing to give to others, okay? I mean, I'll give stuff. I remember a few years ago, my brother-in-law, who's a lot more spiritual than me, had the idea, we did Christmas gifts. Y'all ever do Christmas gifts where like you give like your own stuff away? You ever do that? 
he, he had this idea, you like to give your stuff away. Yeah, my parents like to give stuff away every time I come see them, but this stuff they don't want. What he wanted was to, for us to give our most prized possessions to someone else as a demonstration of love for them. And I thought, you are the, you're not a very smart person. That's what I was thinking. Why would I do that? This is important to me. I, this, I, like, they're not going to care, but I care. I want it. And the reality is, can we come to a place where we're willing to sacrifice? Sacrifice does not mean I give you the stuff I don't want. And I haven't looked at that stuff in 10 years. Yeah, listen, I, hey, put a big bow around that. I don't have to look at it anymore. But sacrifice means I like it. I want it. I want to keep that. That's important to me. Am I willing to give that to somebody else? Now that is a way that you will live your life. And while I hope you'll never have to make the decision to sacrifice your life for somebody else, are you willing to sacrifice for others? Now, sacrifice costs us something. To sacrifice means to to feel it. To sacrifice means I had something and now I don't have that thing anymore, but I'm giving it away because there's a bigger purpose behind it. Earlier, in the few verses before this, he says, listen, if somebody needs something, you need to give it to them. And he's talking about other believers. If you see somebody and they need something, why would you not give it to them? We are terrible about the concept of I will pray for you, which prayer is powerful. In fact, we're going to find that prayer is one of the great indicators and, and how, what kind of prayer life we have is a great indicator of our life with Christ. However, to, to say to someone who is in need, I will pray for you. you know, I can hurt. I'm hungry. I don't have any clothes. I can't buy school supplies for my kids, but I'm glad that you're praying for me. He says, you'll actually practice this in deeds, in action, in practical ways, and someone's in need. You go after and you take care of them. John Stott says this about these verses. Truth can only characterize the behavior of those whose very character originates in the truth. So that it is by our loving others in truth that we know that we ourselves belong to it. It characterizes the behaviors of those whose very character originates in the truth. In other words, what's really going on in the motives of your heart when you see someone in need? I don't have enough. It amazes me we are the wealthiest nation in the world and yet we all constantly live in the mindset of scarcity in the sense that I don't have enough. I don't have enough money. I don't have a big enough house. I don't have a nice enough car. We don't take big enough vacations. We don't eat out enough. The scarcity mindset that says there's not an abundance. We're not receiving an abundance. Instead, I've got to hold on to every little thing because everything I give away is just less that I'm going to have. And what he, what John Stott is saying, what John is saying, and what Jesus was saying was, the more you hold on to the stuff like that, the less you actually have. And the more you give away to others, the more you actually gain. 
It's the backwards mindset of the gospel. A gospel that says the first will be last and the last will be first. A gospel that says blessed are those who are persecuted. A gospel that says blessed are those who are poor in spirit. In which the way that the kingdom works is vastly different than the way the rest of the world works. What John is saying is, if you know love, you will work in the way the kingdom works, not in the way the world works. In the way the kingdom works, it is sacrificial, giving ourselves for others. By giving, we receive. The third thing, how do we know love? We demonstrate love in tangible acts of service. Tangible acts of service. How can you serve others? What are ways that you can meet the needs of others? Let's keep going. Verse 19. If you wonder if I'm going to get, let you ask questions, stop me anytime. This next section is where I want us to spend the rest of our time, most of our time together. First John chapter 3, verse 19. He starts again. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. So I want us to go back to verse 20. And I hope you read this this week, and if you did then you struggled with this. At some level, you struggled with this as you read through, trying to understand what does John mean here. And I want us to struggle with that together just for a few minutes. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. What do you think John is saying there in verse 20? Anyone come to a realization of what John is saying here? Which part? That he is greater than our heart. Okay. What do you think he means by our heart condemns us? What's he saying here? All this is under the, by this we shall know we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. But sometimes our heart condemns us. What does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes our feeling overtakes our reason. It overtakes what we know to be true. What else? What does it mean for our heart to condemn us? Conviction. Conviction. I kind of feel like God's saying, you're always going to be human, and I'm always going to be that. I'm always going to be God. Yeah, yeah. Is anyone in the room ever have a little voice saying to them you're not good enough you're not a good christian oh you've really messed up this time i don't think god can love you i don't think you're lovable anymore maybe it's something minor i shouldn't have said that today <laughs> i should have spent that money on something else maybe it's something like that maybe it's major 
I shouldn't have stolen that. I shouldn't have gone and been alone with that person. Maybe it's major. I bet if we were to all come up here and really bear our hearts, I would dare say, if not all of us, the vast majority of us would open our hearts and what, it would, what we would see is we each have one of those voices. At times, yeah. And one of the ways that, that, that the Holy Spirit uses our hearts is to convict us. To, to say, that's not good. Stop. Stop, stop, stop. That's one of the beautiful gifts of the Holy Spirit that when we begin to listen to the Holy Spirit, that conviction comes and it kind of keeps us on track with where He is. And remember, God did not uh, give us the law and God did not give us commandments and instructions only because He thought, you know what would be fun? Let's just make them jump through some hoops. It's a lot of fun to watch those people jump through hoops. We'll just make these random hoops that they have to jump through. And if they do a good job by the end of the race, then listen, We'll let them in. Someone would even quote Paul after something, some kind of an analogy like that. We're running the race. We want to complete it. We're jumping through the hoops. We're doing, you know. But instead, of the way God describes it is, you were broken when sin entered into the world. But before that, you were created in my image. You were good. You were perfect. You were exactly what I wanted you to be. But sin messes it all up. So I'm trying to show you what it looks like to be restored to how I originally created you to be. So that conviction is not just to say, keep jumping through the hoop, go through the next hoop, go over the next bar. We're having a good time watching you do it up here in heaven. But instead saying, watch out. This is going to break you. This is going to hurt you. This is going to, it's going to feel good, but what it's really going to do is fracture your heart. So be careful. And that conviction can certainly be ways that our heart condemns us. If we have no conviction, we will have no repentance. If we have no repentance, we have no relationship with Christ. So as we look at this, I think you guys, well, you read, either you've been studying this or you read your study Bibles or your commentaries. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. And I love this verse 21. As, and I, I just picture this as we become more attuned to what the Holy Spirit is saying to us. If our heart does not condemn us. In other words, I feel confident that I am living within God's will for me. Which is always, you know, tentative, right? Because some days I'm better at it than others. Some days I'm like, I'm tracking, I'm there. I just feel like God is saying, man, Mark is just, he is doing well today. And then as soon as I, I feel like I get to that point, it's like, you know, mess up. But how beautiful is it to stand before God and not be ashamed? Remember, we've talked about the two most, most influential things in the world outside of God, and that would be love and shame. How great it is to just bask in the love of God without feeling shame, which is, I think, another way John would describe this, that we have confidence before God. Let me ask you this. Where does that voice come from? Where does that condemning voice come from? Could be Holy Spirit and conviction. Where else does that come from? Where do we hear that? You're not good enough. I think you've messed up one too many times. Where do you think that comes from? 
The enemy? Yes. Where else? Society. Society loves people to be down and depressed. Love it. Just loves it. Just go through and look at most of the memes that are published about issues, about anything, and most of the time it's going to say how you're screwing up. You should be doing better. Almost everything that you see, you should be doing better. The world loves to use shame. Maybe you actually have an audible voice attached to a person in your life. It's hard when you have people that you care about in your life that are constantly telling you you're not good enough. When it's a parent, it's especially, especially debilitating. But maybe you're a parent and it's a child who somehow has this epiphany. And now mom and dad are clueless, right? Which all mom and dads are clueless from about the ages of 13 through, oh, about 32. And then they get smarter again, right? That's how it works out for most of us. We realize, oh, I didn't know quite as much. I, I, that was my relationship with my parents. I thought from, from a, I wasn't 13. I would say it's probably, you know, 17 to about, you know, 32, 35. I thought mom and dad just, you know, they just don't get it. And I was like, uh, maybe they get it. <laughs> maybe they get it better than I thought they did. And now I call. Like, I really need to know what you think about this because I don't know clue. And I know you know a lot better than I do. But maybe you have a voice within your life that is telling you you're not good enough. Maybe you have somebody at work and you come in and you're busting it every single day at work and they just love to point out what you did wrong. Don't aren't those fun people to work with? Like you got a hundred things right, but they're not going to mention that. It's the two things you got wrong. I love that. That is so much fun. I always just leave thinking life is good after those kinds of conversations. Where does that voice come from? Maybe that voice is us. Maybe we're that harsh, critical voice for other people. And if you use that harsh, critical voice for other people, you will use it on yourself. So maybe it's us. All right, I think we've answered all the other questions I wanted to go through. So how do we know we are of the truth, which is what he's saying in those verses? How do we know we are of the truth? Number one, we are following Jesus in love and obedience. They both go together. If you're trying your hardest to love and you just think all of the commands of Jesus, all of the things that you, all of the, the commands that, uh, of the law, none of that matters anymore. I'm just going to love. You're just going to find yourself in an empty place. You will find yourself in an empty place. People ask Jesus about this. And the way Jesus described it was, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that you don't do any of the old commandments. I'm not saying you don't do any of that stuff. I'm just saying that once you're doing all that stuff, it will eventually look like loving other people. I'm not saying those things aren't important. And in the way he literally said it was, I have not come to abolish the law. I have come to fulfill it. I've come to demonstrate what it looks like to actually live it out. Jesus, who was tempted but without sin, loved well. And he kept the law. 
So obedience is definitely a part of following Jesus. And when we say, it's just, I'm just going to love people. I'm just going to wrap my theology around the idea that the, the command, if I'm just loving well, I don't even have to know what the law is. It'll just, I'll be doing it. That's not how it works. That is not how it works. How do we know we are of the truth? We are following Jesus in love and in obedience. For me, anytime a person begins to say, you know, that stuff just isn't important. We just love. I rarely listen to another thing they say about God. I rarely listen to another thing. I mean, I'll love them. But if you are of the mindset that I can love without being obedient to Christ, you cannot know Christ. You cannot know Him. If you are obeying the law, let me, let me just give the other side their due. If you are obeying the law, and you're not hurting anybody that you know of, and you're not stealing anything, and you're not murdering anybody, and as far as I know, I'm even doing the, the, you know, the, the deeper level ones. I'm not even hating anybody. Not only am I not murdering, I'm not hating anybody that I know of. You know, there was a man who came to Jesus just that way, and he was like, I want to follow you. I mean, I'm just doing, I'm doing the law so good. And he said, well, the one thing I, you still need to do is go sell everything you have and give it away. Now, his point was not that you need to leave today and sell everything you have and give it away. The point he was trying to make was, you will never keep the whole law. And if you try to do it apart from, the, from love then that is as foolish a goal as trying to love without being obedient. Now, a good conversation, and one of the, if you're in our men's group that we're meeting on Wednesday nights, we're talking in Acts about uh, this Wednesday about um, Peter and Cornelius, Cornelius' vision where now what was against the law, eating certain foods, are now legal, and we're going to be having a wonderful rip-roaring conversation about what that means and what are the implications overall. But Jesus never said, you can ignore everything else. Now just love each other. He never says that. How do we know we are of the truth? We are following Jesus in love and in obedience. They both have to be so very important and part of this. Also, we trust Christ's propitiation or atonement over our own conviction and self-doubt. This is the beautiful thing I think, Leslie, you were saying. God is bigger than the condemning voices coming from our hearts. That doubt that says, I'm just, gosh, I'm not good enough. <laughs> no, you're not. Oh, man, I screwed up so much. Yeah. You ha- I always think it's funny when people have this mindset that we can just be good enough. I just think, are you just, you live in another world than the rest of us do. Because, you know, I'm always messing up. I, you know, I, and, and, and I fortunately have loving people that will say it lovingly to me, sometimes lovingly. But I'm always messing up. And I just think, that you people that have come to the place where, listen, I've got this thing made. I've got it licked. I'm so good at all this. I think, you just live in a different world from me. I love. Not only is God greater than our heart, but that he knows everything. He knows our motives. You know, there are times I do things and, and I get celebrated for them. Man, did you see what Mark did? Oh, it's so good. So glad he's our pastor. Because I hear that all the time. I don't really. But, <laughs> but you know, I, it's just, man, Mark is just, did you see that? That's, gosh, he really loves Jesus. And yet in my heart, you don't know what my motive was. But God does. 
It's like the Pharisees. Hey, listen, you've got a Pharisee in, in the pulpit up here. I'm just telling you, you've got a Pharisee up here. Because there are times I do something, I know it looks good, but in my heart, I have the wrong motive. That's what they did. Oh, we say these long prayers. Oh, wow. What a beautiful prayer. Yeah, like David. Yeah. But that's, that's an inside, not David. I'm just, he is a longer than average prayer, and that means he's close to God. But. They're always different words, and they always are meaningful and apply to the situation at hand. David is a very meaningful prayer. We just joke about that with him. We just joke about that with him, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If they're a guest today, they'll never come back. Yeah, well, they're really hard on each other here. You better believe it, we are. Uh, that's how we love each other. Um, but, but I love that he knows my motives, and he's still bigger than that. I love that when I'm a Pharisee, he's still bigger than that. I love that his grace covers when I'm being a moron. I love it. And when you're all a moron too. Let's not make it all one-sided, right? Because sometimes you all are too. There it is. There's my motive again. Tell me how good I am. All right. We trust Christ's propitiation over our own conviction and doubt. And if he knows our motives... How in the world can we fool him, even if we can fool others? The other thing that we see just in these verses here is that he says, whatever we ask, we receive from him, which I is not me, which causes me sometimes to question myself. Like I will pray stuff and it doesn't happen. My, the point here is not that you pray and everything you pray for happens. The point here is that you have an active prayer life and you see God at work as a result of it. Do you have an active prayer life and see something as a result? So how do we know we are of the truth? We see God answering our prayers. Now, when I was a kid, I sat in worship thinking then when I was, you know, six, seven years old, how they could be a more effective church. So I've been at this thing for quite a while and we had this massive, it was a big church. We had this massive choir loft and we had this wood, and we had these big panels, and these big inset areas, and we had this massive baptistry that was just beautiful back there. And I just imagine, because at the time, I don't do this anymore, because, you know, you'll shoot somebody's eye out. But we had shooting galleries. You remember shooting galleries? Some, some places still have them. I just thought, you know, if you put a shooting gallery in this place, you get a lot more kids in here. I really, I honestly thought that I could just see the ducks coming across the baptistry. I could just sit there. He could be talking, ding, yeah, yeah, this is great. I love Jesus. Five, six years old, right? Five, six years old. The reality is that God knows all about us. He knows what my motive is. He knows whether I really love him or I want to serve him. He knows if I'm struggling with my sin or if I'm not struggling with my sin. He knows if I'm in worship soaking him in and giving him all the praise I can or if I'm him saying, yeah, I don't like that song. Yeah, that song didn't speak to me. We've had over the last couple of weeks some heavy hitter Christians leave the faith. Some of you are watch this stuff. Some of you who are smarter than the rest of us stay away from all that social media stuff. <laughs> Two in particular. One wrote a, a book that 
every guy hated. I kissed dating goodbye, and he came out and he said, I just don't believe this anymore, and I'm so happy not to be a follower of Jesus anymore. Very well-known pastor, books sold, I don't know how many copies were sold, one of the most successful Christian books in recent history. I just, I don't believe anymore. One of the members uh, of Hillsong, who's not a member anymore, came out this week and just said, you know, I just, there's just so many discrepancies in faith. I just don't, I just don't agree with it. You know, there's so many bad things that happen and no one has a good answer for why bad things happen in the world. I just don't believe it anymore. And our motives matter. Our motives matter. You know, am I up here teaching because I really feel like God has given me something to say and this is what God wants me to do and I really want you to, you know, this is about you and your faith? Or am I up here so that you can go, wow, Mark's a good teacher? Our worship team, are they up here saying, I just want to worship? Or it's hard to be good as a worship team and not feel like their response is for you and not God. I'm just telling you, I don't feel like that's our worship team. I'm just telling you, it's hard. We sometimes see some of the Hillsong concerts. I wish we would just call them concerts. We call them worship events. I just wonder, who do we worship at those? Who are we worshiping? Who are we cheering when they come out on stage? Oh, we're cheering God. Certainly some people are. It's hard to know. One of the worst things we've done is create Christian celebrities. That we have divorced us from the brokenness in which Christ has rescued us from. When we create celebrities, we set them up to fall. We are setting them up to fall. For example, if you are a member of and writing songs for the most successful Christian band of all time, and everyone cheers when you walk out, and they say you're awesome, and you are their conduit to God, and they can't get enough of you, and you sell out whatever size crowd there is everywhere, it's not far-fetched to think within their heart somewhere they said, I'm as important to God as God. I'm as important as God. And that's what happens. What also happens with Christian celebrities when it comes to motives is that in reality, I'm really good at something. And so I could really care less how God uses it for the kingdom. I just want to be really good at it and make a living doing it. I've mentioned before when we started Journey, there were 12 other churches that started and none of them were still around after a few years and about half of the pastors that I knew of those churches had left the church after their church failed. I thought, how can you pastor a church and not attend a church? I mean, how how did that work out? And this reality is, is we've been through some times in in church building life in which we have valued the skills of building an organization over a heart that is submissive before God. I don't condemn those people. And many of those, just so you know, have come back. And he took some time away and they've they've come back to the church. But our motives matter. This reality of loving well and obeying matter. God sees it all. There's no, we can, you can hide it from me. I can hide it from you. I cannot hide it from God. This stuff matters. The gospel is not, I'm going to say a prayer, and then when my time comes and my ticket's punched, I'm in heaven. That is not the gospel. That's a fairy tale. 
The gospel is you were broken because sin entered into the world. You were created in God's image. And God has been working from that moment to restore you back to the place in which he had created you. And when you find that Jesus is the one who makes that possible, you say, Jesus, oh my gosh, I'll give everything for this. Which is the parable of the pearl of great price. It's the parable of the treasure belt in the field. It is not about, oh, I've got to do this stuff so that I can be good enough to make it to heaven. I don't care if there's a heaven. I have Jesus. He is real. He is my greatest treasure. And when we begin to live that way, it makes love and obedience just kind of fall away as in, of course I'm going to love. Of course I'm going to obey. Of course I'm still broken. And until I see Jesus face to face, I'm going to be, and it's, it's going to be a struggle, which is why scripture says, you've got to work out your salvation. You've got to work this out. This changing of mindsets, this changing of worldviews, this changing of the way we live our lives. You've got to work this stuff out. Romans 14 says, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Be intentional. Be graceful. Be intentional. Be graceful. We also see in these verses that God is answering our prayers. What do you think that looks like? What do you think John means here? We went out to eat one too many times this week. Electric bill's coming due. I can't pay the electric bill. God, would you just put a check in my mailbox? Is that what he means? What does he mean here when he says that they see that their prayers are being answered? How do you struggle with that? We have to be praying for the right things. Jenny? Okay, takes time, patience, good, very good. Why have heaven? Why have heaven? Yeah. Well, it's a good question. Why have heaven? If it's not about just getting to heaven, why have? Why is heaven even a part of this equation? What do you think? God wants to be with the children. I believe that. Your, our motive for what place heaven plays in our lives demonstrates for me what place Jesus has in our lives. I don't in any way want to communicate that heaven's not important or that it's not on my radar. <laughs> Uh, but when we do things just to get to heaven, the question is, what does heaven look like for you? 
Is heaven Disney World? Is it perpetual vacation? Is it condo on the beach? Is it I just don't have these stresses in my life. I don't hurt or suffer. I don't have this pain anymore in my body. Because, see, you can have all those things and not have Jesus at all in that scenario. But literally what heaven is, is we're like, we fully see Jesus. We are fully restored to how we were originally created. And we get to be with him all the time. Uh, I can't remember his name. An author wrote um, wrote the generous orthodoxy. Somebody knows the name. Brian McLaren. Uh, heretic in some circles. So it's something very interesting once. And I is always uh, uh, just stuck with me. Even though scripture talks about heaven, or it's not heaven, but hell being a place of burning and gnashing of teeth, of suffering, pain, and hurt. What if the heaven and hell are the same place? Because uh, literally those were descriptions of a specific place in Scripture that was a trash dump. <laughs> I mean, hell was, he was talking about for them in their minds, oh, he's talking about that place out side of town. And, and it was the symbol of just torture and pain and just agony and weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I remember this is the first time, I'm not saying this is how it is, but I remember reading this thinking, wow, that's so interesting if you look at a holistic systematic theology that what if heaven and hell are the same place? The only difference is the only people who view it as heaven are the people who are excited to be there with Jesus. And everyone else is there, and they're not excited to be around Jesus. Now, I don't think that bears out probably in what Scripture teaches on heaven and hell. However, I thought it was a very interesting way of viewing heaven in the sense of, is Jesus the object of our hope there? Or is a lack of hardship what our hope is for heaven? So if Jesus is the object, then it's okay if we don't ever get to the place without pain, hurt, or suffering because I have Jesus now and that was the whole point all along anyways. So if I have it now, even if I don't have him eternally, the fact that I have him now is enough. However, that is a false test to say, does somebody really love Jesus to say they would give up heaven? Nowhere in scripture does it ask us to think or speak that way, but as a practical way of understanding heaven, is having Jesus here now enough of a treasure that it's worth following him, loving him, obeying him now, even if I don't get that later. And what that would do if heaven wasn't there is it would eliminate everyone who said a prayer and came to church once a year so that they could ensure their ticket to heaven later. A place without pain, a place without suffering. Which How do we describe heaven? No pain, no suffering, no tears. But you can have all that and not have Jesus. Heaven is all about Jesus. It's about being restored. So that's probably a very short, simplistic way of trying to answer that question. Why is it there? One one of the reasons I think it's there for Revelation is simply because uh, this life is full of brokenness. Pain, suffering, hardship. And he wants us to know that once we are fully restored to how he intended for this all to be, none of that stuff will be there. And it is something for us to look forward to. When you look at John, who is reportedly someone who was put in a vat of boiling oil, and he survived. Well, I hope there's something better than this <laughs> at the end of all this. And I think it is to give hope. It is for us to have hope that there is something more and there is something better. Um, one of the indicators is what do we really want heaven to be? And I'll be honest, this is an area for me that I'm constantly praying about and thinking about. What really excites me about heaven I don't have to worry about finances. 
I don't have to worry about doing a job. Uh, you know, I don't have to, nothing goes wrong. Everybody's good. I mean, what is it? What am I most anticipating in heaven? And if it's not Jesus, then it's a worldly view of heaven. Anyways, all right. Let's move on. We've got to finish up. Good question. Good thing to struggle with. All right. We see God answering our prayers. I ask, what does this look like? It doesn't matter what we pray, but it also does look like seeing God answer even when he answers in a way that we don't particularly want. I think it also means that we are confident to be in the presence of God in prayer. We're confident. So uh, there's a, a sales pitch for a new journal. Um, be motivated to get your quiet time done. You may have seen this. I just I saw it yesterday. Be motivated. Get your quiet time done. Uh, the journal that will help you get your quiet time done. I thought, is that how I want my family to view their time with me? You, they got to get their time done with me, you know? Now, I know I'm being a little harsh here, but the point is, is our quiet time something that has to be done? <laughs> or is it time we look forward to because that's where God is and I get to spend time with Him? See, there's a difference in the way our motives work. There's a difference. Oh, I got to... I'm not read that. I'm not read the Bible. You know, for one, God doesn't condemn us because we didn't read the Bible. But also, the question is, well, what is my motive in knowing God if I don't want to know His Word? You know, it's see, it gets complicated. This is why there's wheat and tares, and Jesus says, "I'm going to have to figure this out," because you never will. We can't even figure ourselves out sometimes. What He's trying to say, I think, through all this is that our confidence comes from keeping the commandments of Jesus and living in a way that most sincerely, that we most sincerely believe pleases Him. We do this because we love Him. We love Him because He loved us. And He gave Himself for us. Let me finish this last one. We're going to skip down to 1 John three twenty four. Whoever keeps His commandments abide in God, and God in Him, and this is the third by this we know, and by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God. That is the commandment to love. But it's a lot more than that too. But whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God is in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Which is a hard question. Do you feel the Spirit within you? I feel the Spirit in me, but I don't feel the Spirit in me the way it's sometimes described, like this, you know, fire burning in me. It's not like there's two of us in here. Sometimes I feel like there's two of us in here, but really I need professional help for that. It's not the Holy Spirit. But I don't feel it that way. I don't feel like I'm here and like some presence has entered into me. I have had that feeling before, and it was when I came to know Christ. But all kinds of people experience different different things when they come to faith in Christ. That's not a test like you have to. But for me, ongoing day by day, and this is just me, and if we had more time, I mean, I would, I would love to hear from you what this experience is for you. But some of the ways that I know the Spirit is active in me is when I see a change in me. When I see a change in my motives. That's the Holy Spirit. It's not me. When I do something selfless, understand... 
that is the Holy Spirit. That is not me. I'm a very selfish person. When I do something selfless, that is the Holy Spirit. I give the Holy Spirit His due. I give Christ His due for His transforming me. Do you have moments where you recognize God is changing you? I asked our small group one time, do you ever feel like God is saying, well done, you did a good job? And by and large, most people said, no, I don't ever feel that way. And I would be lying if I always felt that way. Sometimes I don't feel that way. But if you never have a moment that you feel God is saying, yes, yes, you're getting it. Yes, this is the kingdom. Yes, this is what it looks like to live with me, to have me living within you. Yes, you're getting a glimpse of heaven. Oh, man, you, yes, you're being restored. If you never have those moments, how do you follow Christ? I don't know how you do it. I couldn't. If all I ever heard from him was, good try, Mark. Good try. Nope. Not today either. How do we get there? How do we get there? I'm not saying that Jesus is going to look down and be surprised at how good we're doing. But there is a party, Scripture says, when you come to faith in Christ, I believe there's a party the more we align ourselves with Christ. You should hear at times within you the Holy Spirit saying, yes, you're getting it. And you should be encouraged in that moment. Here's what I want to leave with you. When we are characteristically living in obedience, we experience a reciprocal fellowship with God. What I mean by that is characteristically, like over the long haul, when we are in general living in obedience, when what our character is, is to be obedient. Not that we don't mess up, not that we don't fall, not that we don't disobey, but that our general way of living life is to live in obedience. We experience a reciprocal fellowship with God. And based on what he said just a few verses ago, in the times that you fail... God covers you. And your heart condemns you because you're not living the way you characteristically would be. God covers you. Let us live in truth and love. Can't choose one over the other. They're both so crucial. Father, help us to do this and do this well. Father, help us to experience you, to when we pray, I pray that you would just give us eyes to see you working and answering. Father, when, you, when we obey, when we are loving well, when we are doing what honors you and doing what pleases you, experience your pleasure in us and be encouraged by that. Father, in the complicated lives that we live, complicated relationships we have, not always knowing what the right answer is, let us let us love well while being obedient. I know discernment is a spiritual gift, but we all need a level of discernment in this area. We need this. Father, help us to be able to discern how to love and how to obey. I pray that we would be a people, a submissive people of humble hearts 
so that we don't lord over others because we feel like we're doing better than them or they're not doing good enough, which is how we so easily slip in to something other than the gospel. Father, I pray that you would help us to love well, to love humbly, to serve well, and help us to be obedient to what you've called us to be. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the gift of salvation through Christ. We thank you that we have the Holy Spirit within us that leads us, directs us, teaches us, intercedes for us, empowers us. We thank you for those gifts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.